This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome to this mini episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guests this week are Zach Budrick and Charlie Stern, who both host the relationship podcast, Stim for Stim. And now here we are reading a letter from a listener. All right, well, I, I will take us then into our third letter. Um, and I, I'm, I'm glad I was able to reserve this one for, for you two. We spoke a little bit in our emails leading up to this episode about ways in which disability justice has informed your own approach to STEM for STEM. And um, the, the question that follows actually has to do with somebody who's um, looking to date and, and to think about a relationship to disclosure that feels like safe and, and accessible to them um, uh, living HIV positive, which I realize is, is not um, within the same exact uh, sort of framework, but does also also touch upon, I think, disability justice, um, especially because the letter writer seems so concerned about um, being met with hostility um, or, or treated as suspect. Um, and so that felt quite relevant, at least in, in terms of your own approach. So I'm I'm eager to hear a little bit more about um, what you two uh, might, might want to offer this letter writer. So um, <clears throat> the subject is rejection navigation. I was diagnosed with HIV over six years ago, and since then, I haven't gone on a single date. Not for any medical reason. The medications these days are scientific marvels, and within a few months, my viral load was undetectable, which means, PSA alert, that I can expect a quote-unquote normal lifespan, and more importantly also means that I cannot transmit the virus to my sexual partners. Rather, the problem has been in my head. And it's taken all these years of conversations with friends and therapists to mostly get past internalized stigma and the stubborn remnants of my evangelical upbringing to the point where I can start to entertain the idea of dating again. Given stigma, it's a foregone conclusion that I'll be rejected fairly often by guys who would otherwise make great romantic partners. How do I balance disclosing something so personal and potentially damaging too early to potentially vicious assholes and disclosing too late? sudden rejection when I've grown attached. Obviously before sex, but what, before the first date, after the 10th? How do I choose between the intimacy and privacy of disclosing face-to-face and the emotional safety of disclosing via text? Trying to date after a six-year dry spell as a gay man coming up on 40 might always have been hard, but with this extra thing, I'm at a loss. I really felt for this letter writer, just not least because it's clear that you know, he's been pretty hard on himself um, for these last six years and just that sort of bit towards the end of like, you know, it would have always been hard because I've uh, got all these other things kind of struck against me. And I I guess I mostly wanted to start from a place of just uh, wanting to congratulate this letter writer on, you know, looking after his well-being, talking with his friends, reaching out for support when he needed it, and starting to think about whether he's ready for something new. Like, you just, you sound really thoughtful, letter writer, and you sound like a really caring, conscientious person. And I hope that whatever dating looks like next for you, that you're met with equally considerate, thoughtful people. Yeah, I actually think the joining theme, the connecting theme of all of these submissions um, is shame. And I think that before we say anything, we need to uh, 
reassure everyone, but specifically this letter writer, that they are a full person whose needs actually matter and that they are not deficient when going into interactions with other people. Those people are not more important than them. Yeah. And I I really appreciated the letter writer's, uh, you know, sense of that, you know, historically there have been, uh, you know, numerous, numerous cases of, of, of people discriminating against people living with HIV, um, not merely in, in professional, but also personal settings, um, that there are ways and, and circumstances in which, you know, um, attempting to date or have sex as a positive person without immediate disclosure has been criminalized at times. So, you know, like in the first letter, I wanted to start by sort of doing two almost contradictory things at once, one of which was to say, I hope you can stop being quite so hard on yourself. And also, I understand where your sense of like danger and risk is coming from. Um, I I did want to start by saying, you know, there's, I think, a dynamic in this letter that sort of seems to, it seems to me like this letter writer is sort of thinking like, I'm the only one in the world. Not like, oh, poor me, but like, Everyone else who's on the dating scene right now has everything together, would be really judgmental of my like status, and um, is is not living uh, with HIV. Um, but there are, in fact, a number of like dating sites dedicated for like people who are positive. And that's not to say, letter writer, just go date other HIV positive people. That's who you should only be interacting with. I, I don't mean that by any stretch of the imagination, but I do wonder if knowing that that is a possibility for you, that it might go a long way towards relieving your fears. Because it's like, we both know what it's like to try to deal with this. Um, we, we might not have the exact same experience um, with our diagnoses, but, but we, you know, I, I can at least expect they're not going to go, what? Um, so, you know, there's, there's pause match, there's pause personals, there's positive singles, there's, there's H zone, there's HIV people meet, there's positives dating. There's lots of, it's all pause positives. You know, there's a lot of positivity in the names. Um, I won't go through and list them all. And I don't have, you know, any one that I would recommend more than any other, but there are lots of sites and apps that are dedicated to helping positive people like meet, date, support each other. So, that might be one option that goes a long way towards making you feel like you're not the only person um, worried about disclosing your status. Yeah, and I don't want to step too out of bounds because I'm not on Grindr, but people close to me obviously are. Um, but it's not uncommon for people to have their status on on their Grindr profiles. And that that kind of makes it pretty... I mean, the the playing field is so even because there are many different things that a person could put on their grinder profile that are non-negotiable or not what someone's looking for and and then you know they they go to someone else's profile i think that's a useful suggestion and letter writer you might decide that that's not for you because you don't want to disclose something personal or that might potentially get used against you up front. And that would make sense. But if you do go that route, one nice thing that it does is it sort of automates it. Um, Not that everyone always reads everyone's profile scrupulously, but um, it will at least do more to sort of automate a a conversation that could otherwise feel really fraught. Um, And I think that's a really useful suggestion. Um, You know, my other thought in in this letter was it's a foregone conclusion that I'll be rejected fairly often, which 
I hope is not the case, letter writer. I think there's reason to believe that that will not be your primary experience, um, but I don't want to discount that possibility entirely. But you say guys who would otherwise make great romantic partners. Um, but then later in, in the next sentence, you say, how do I balance disclosing something so personal and potentially damaging too early to possibly vicious assholes? And I, I do think that kind of answers part of that question. Like the fear is if I, you know, disclose too early, uh, guys who would otherwise have made great boyfriends will reject me. But I, I, I think, you know, even if you don't want to go so far as to say that they're all going to be vicious assholes, like, I think it's safe to say that a guy who would reject you if he really liked you and heard that you were HIV positive um, is, at the very least, not going to make a great romantic partner for you. Yeah, it's almost uh, like the the thing when your parents may or may not have told you, uh, like if they if they don't want to if they don't want to be your friend because of that, they must not really be your friend. It's a similar dynamic. Yeah, which can sometimes feel like cold comfort, but I also think is genuinely true. You don't want to get close or vulnerable with any guy who would be, you know, judgmental or reflexively suspicious of like HIV positive people, partly because it would harm you, but also because I I think it doesn't, you know, that would mean he doesn't share your values. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, another thing too. Not necessarily a a solution, but I think, uh, you know, something to take comfort in is that, you know, you are obviously you're trying to avoid rejection, but this is also like born of uh, empathy for a potential partner as well. And I think that that's a quality that makes you a catch, honestly, and that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. My other thought would be that maybe I don't know if the letter writer has previously done this, but if there are are any support groups for people living with HIV in your area um, or remotely over Zoom, that might also be helpful. Not, by the way, to go trawling the support group for dates, um, but because, you know, it, it will help you, I think, get a sense of like, you know, there have been people dating and living with HIV AIDS for decades now. Um, and so I'm not the first one to encounter these problems. I'm not the first or the only person who has to deal with these, you know, trade-offs. And I can gain support and and care from other people going through similar things. Um, and that will go a long way towards making you feel like, what do other people in my position do? What works for them? What doesn't? What do they try? Um, rather than it's just me with my, you know, my big secret and I'm out there on my own. Yeah. I I wish all of these writers could be friends with each other. Yeah, I felt like there was a sort of common thread of care. There's a there's a common thread and and you know, like I said there's a common thread of shame and I want them all to have non-judgmental love in their lives and that doesn't have to be romantic. Yeah, it it might be asking too much of the letter writer right now to think about how could I approach dating while thinking of like my relationship to you know, my positive status, my health, um, my community as a good thing. Like that might feel like too much. You you say you've been, you know, working on discarding shame left over from an evangelical tradition that you grew up in. And I, I really appreciate that that can be very, very difficult. So I don't want to set an impossible standard, but I do think that it will help you decide when and under what conditions you do feel comfortable disclosing. If you can even just say to yourself, even if you don't f- fundamentally believe it yet, um, You know, there are a lot of gay men living with HIV AIDS who date, um, who, you know, 
deserve love and respect and um, who talk about their health status and safer sex practices. This is a known thing. It happens. Um, I am part of that community and I deserve to be treated, you know, with respect and not like a, you know, a a sideshow attraction. Um, And that I think will make it a little bit easier for you to think about it in terms of like what feels safest to me, not um, not just what's going to minimize rejection, but, um, you know, this is a part of who I am. Um, and I just, I really, really wish you well, letter writer. I really hope that your what you think is the foregone conclusion is not the case. I, I hope you get met with more, uh, you know, not, I, I wanted to say like more generosity, but like letter writer, as you say, like it's, it's 2021, your viral load is undetectable. You know, we, we live in an era of like prep and like, positive dating sites, like not to say that stigma is gone um, or that there are no guys out there who would judge you for your status, but um, it's, I, I think it, you you might find more welcome than you currently fear you'll find. And good luck. Um, I would also love to, to hear an update from you. So um, please, please feel free to write back. All right. So this is our, our last question. It is a, a lightning round. Um, since there are two of you, you uh, will each get one minute to answer. You don't have to share a minute. Um, and uh, if, you, if you like, I'm happy to, to go first to sort of pave the way if you want to uh, be able to sort of uh, ride in the wake of somebody else's answer. I sometimes like doing that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read it first, though. The subject is off the clock, please. I love the relationship I have with my partner. We've both recently been promoted, and we both love our careers. But I've set a boundary where once I'm off the clock, I prefer to pursue my other interests, since otherwise my job can really intrude into my downtime. My partner, on the other hand, is a very industry person in all parts of his life, and so are his friends when we're out together. To be fair, his industry is very cool, but too much work talk puts me on edge or bores me to the point of exhaustion. I've tried to directly tell him I'm not always in the mood to discuss work. I want to decompress. That's curbed his inquiries about my own work to an extent. I'll tell him my day was fine and he'll move on. But it feels almost cruel for me to tell him he can't talk about his career when that's such a big part of who he is. I don't want to be misconstrued. I don't expect him to never talk about work. I just don't know how to fairly establish a shared threshold for work talk without feeling like I'm stomping on his identity. I also don't know how much longer I can spend knowing every intricate detail of the drama related to his email server before I reach a breaking point. All right, I'm going to put a minute on the clock and then I'm going to try to offer some useful advice. This is tricky. This is one of those things where without either of you necessarily doing anything wrong, it may simply prove to be a a real sticking point and a real question of compatibility. Um, And and that's hard. I think sometimes when we really care about somebody, if there's something that just really, really gets in the way of our being able to connect, but we don't think they've done anything wrong, it can feel like, well, surely breaking up isn't the answer. You only break up when somebody's bad or a jerk. Um, And you may end up deciding that you two just don't have enough common interests to continue seeing one another, even if you really love each other. Um, so that might not be the end of the world. The only other thought I would have is ask your partner, say to your partner, I want to come up with a shared threshold for work talk. I don't know what that's going to look like. I can tell you my breaking points. 
What are yours? What's your ideal? How much time do you want to spend talking about other things? And then based on the information you get in that conversation, you can try to figure out if compromise is possible or if you two just want totally opposite things. Time's up. I'm done. Oh, good. Everyone gets to hear my alarm. (laughs) Charlie, do you want to go ahead or should I? Oh, you can go ahead. Okay. Uh, Well, first off, I definitely agree on the need for clear communication about this and about, uh, you know, whether it's something insurmountable because I think one of the big things for me uh, communicating in a relationship is you really can't assume that anything is so minor that no resentment will fester if you completely force it down and ignore it. I think that that is a really unsafe assumption to make, no matter how uh, silly or uh, innocuous the thing in question seems to be. And uh, uh, like Danny said, I think, you know, definitely actually have like uh, an actual talk about it and, uh, you know, determine areas of agreement and you know, maybe uh, immovable forces, no, unstoppable forces versus immovable objects. I think it's, you know, this is essentially just like a in my uh, boundaries discussion in microcosm. And obviously no one would disagree that you should uh, discuss boundaries within a relationship. Beautiful. Well done. All right, Charlie, you let me know when you're ready and I'll start the clock. I think I'm ready. Let's do it. Um... I think, first of all, um, I'm going to focus on when we are out together uh, because I think you guys should hang out with separate groups of people. You know, um, this reminds me of, you know, as a photographer, when I am shooting shows, uh, mostly pre-pandemic, but, um, you know, when I'm shooting a wrestling show, which is a fun thing, Um, I don't want to bring a date to me working. Um, you know, I want to give my full attention to someone I am in some sort of romantic arrangement with. Um, but bringing a date to a work thing, uh, isn't kind. And it sounds like this partner, um, is in work mode 24 seven. So maybe they just shouldn't go out together. Um, They should just, you know, separate. Uh, This partner has his friends and his work mode and they're all obsessed with their industry. And then our uh, letter writer uh, has other hobbies and other friends and can function. Yeah, I, every time I do the lightning round, all I can think of is, Now I have so many more things to say, but that's not how lightning rounds work. (laughs) We all went a little over time. No one's allowed to criticize us for it. Uh, We all did great. I think I meandered too much because I... I don't know how long a minute, a minute is. It's so much <laughs> shorter than What's I think time? it is. Yeah, I have a terrible relationship mm-hmm. to time under the best of circumstances. Every time I have done this and I have set the clock for a minute, by the time it goes off, I'm like, you're lying to me. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. 10 seconds. Sorry I've been, about that. I've been, weird. I've been cooking more lately, so I am really having like minute on reality lately anyway. So <laughs> do you set timers when you're cooking? Because that's the only thing that I find helps me. Yeah, yeah. I set timers, but I also like sometimes the recipes I'm going by will have me like 
cooking something for 20 minutes and then uh, cooking something on the stovetop for like five minutes. So I've only got the one timer. So I'll like be trying to align them as much as possible. I'll do that. And then I'll think like, okay, and I'll just mentally add three minutes and I'll remember what that's for. (laughs) And then by the time the alarm goes off, I'm just like, who am I? Whose apartment is this? What am I doing? (laughs) What smells good or bad? Um, It it does not work. I got to find a better strategy. As as much as I... As much as I hate intuitive tech and AI and things like Boston Dynamics and fascist STEM, I wish I had an oven or a stove that could tell me from the point I walk away from it and then walk back to it, how long it's been. Because I forget to set timers and then I walk away and I, you know, watch a 10 minute video and then I'm like, wait, there was something 10 minutes ago (laughs) that I needed to remember for the end of this video. Like I I wish my oven could tell me, Oh, you walked away 11 minutes ago. The only thing I know that even approximates the thing that you wish existed is a restaurant, which is unfortunately not a solution to the problem of cooking and remembering (laughs) time. I don't want a Boston, but don't want a Boston, but dynamics waiter. I, I really thought you were going to make yeah, a Boston I, market I'm, joke and I was really ready okay. for it. <laughs> no, I mean, what we all need is, is our own personal sous chef. Absolutely. With an impeccable internal clock. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or, or the wherewithal to pick up their own phone <laughs> and start a timer. I will get to work on that immediately. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>